Let's talk about um, these inventions of religion and the secular here. It's almost like orthopraxy is the secularism to barber's orthodoxy of religion. Hey yo, welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And we're going to jump into our barber text this week, going through chapter four, which is discussing uh, secularism, secular and Christianity, and uh, is going to probably present these terms in a quite interesting way. Christianity, religion, and the secular is the name of the chapter. So stick around for that because I think it'll definitely provide some interesting resources for how we can sort of expand his argument into these other domains uh, and think of them fruitfully and then hopefully ultimately leading us to the final chapter, which will be done in a couple of weeks, talking about, I guess, his the culmination of his project in this book on what to do with the, the, the concept of the diaspora. Um, so stay tuned for that in a couple of minutes because we will be talking about that. Yeah, but I'd also say real quick that if you've had trouble with some of the more like theological or religious aspects of the previous chapters in this book, this is a lot more philosophical, I think, and uh, mm. of like general interest because it talks about sort of religion from an abstract point of view and as well as the transition into secularism. So uh, if that's bothered you at all, you found that a little bit uninteresting, then this should hopefully kind of be beyond that mode. You think so? I also found this to be like the most like linear of the chapters. It's like he starts with Christianity, then he moves to the secular, and then he like is like, okay, what do we do with that? And then he's like, and then here's where we go moving forward. And it was the first time that he had kind of like really laid out a really kind of easy argument to follow. So yeah, yeah. there's there's it's kind of clear in the first couple paragraphs where it's going, and it just kind of follows yeah. that path. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I agree, Troy. All right, but first thing we got to do is give a shout out to our sponsors over at Mubi. It's M-U-B-I. Mubi is a streaming service that has 30 perfectly curated films at a given time that are in a 30-day rotation. What do you call this kind of rotation, Troy? I'm thinking of like a round. Like, you know when you guys do, uh, you know, row, row, row your boat, and someone goes, row, row, row your boat, and then as soon as you go into that, they go, row, 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 and you're doing a round? And then it's like you have 10 people that are doing this round. Did you ever do that? Or were you not involved in choirs? Yeah, I mean, I'm aware of that. But like, at some point, you repeat things there. This is not repeated, right? This is like a yeah, slaughterhouse so, line. Yeah. We, yeah. Because it's like each film has a 30-day rotation. And so you start with one. And then that goes for 30 days. And then as soon as the first day is gone, then the next one starts. And then the next one starts. There's got to be a a name for that is it a slaughterhouse rotation i've never even heard of that that's just what just came like, to mind for me you mean like line Dark up mines. the cows and we'll chop off their heads <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know just take the valent imagery and make it about watching a movie okay at so, any time um, you've got 30 on the line that's the key right <laughs> and then one gets chopped at the end yeah that's okay that is right yeah they get chopped at the end they have 30 days of life um, so it kind of creates a sense of urgency, which is nice, um, but it also keeps it really fresh. And these films, as I said, are curated from a group of experts that are and cinephiles that are trying to present classics of cinema, independent films, 
foreign art house darlings that may have uh, flown under the radar that you didn't either know about or that you knew about that maybe you missed. Um, I've actually been really fortunate to catch a bunch of films that like, you know, you hear about when you study cinema or that you, if you're interested in cinema, that you're like, oh man, I really want to watch that film or that director. And at some point, inevitably, because of the quick rotation, I guess you could say, they do come through my uh, my purview. And so I've been given access to a lot of uh, kind of amazing auteur directors and just pieces of uh, artistic cinema so but Mubi are sponsoring us and if you go to movie.com slash owls at dawn they'll give you a 30-day free uh, or extended free trial to watch their films and have access to their service but troy is going to tell you real quick about a film that is in their current slaughterhouse rotation and uh, <laughs> i'm not sure they appreciate what... that metaphor but <laughs> Mike, if you're listening from movie, we love you. It's we mean this with love. Um, so, what do you think, Troy? What what's tickling your fancy at the moment? On yeah, so really rotation? quick, real quick before I mention the the film, I want to just say that the the curation also involves things that are kind of in the news right now. If there's a filmmaker who's has a new film out, then they'll um, put a number of their previous films out on the uh, on the curated list. Like right now, then Claire Dennis. Um, or Denis, is she French? Uh, I, I always thought it was Claire Denis, yeah. Yeah, uh, has a bunch of her old, older films that are on there because she's got that new one with Robert Pattinson. Space Robert Pattinson, I forget exactly what it's called, like <laughs> High Life or something like that. I thought it was like mm -hmm. a, that movie with, uh, with Method Man and Red Man back in the 90s, but apparently it's not. <laughs> I think a very different film. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but speaking of that, uh, Alex Ross Perry has a new film out called Her Smell with Elizabeth uh, Moss. Have you heard about that one? No, she's playing like a punk rock um, vocalist who's deals with like addiction and all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Uh, I've been mm -hmm. looking forward to it because I've I've heard that it's really great and it deals with like a punk rock indie rock um, type culture, which I'm obviously interested in. So a number of his films are on movie right now, including the film Listen Up, Philip, which came out in 2014, starring. Uh, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Elizabeth Moss, and Jonathan Price, and uh, I watched this back when it came out, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's kind of a black comedy about uh, Jason Schwartzman, who's a novelist, and he's struggling with a number of things um, in his early career, and he decides to sort of like take up uh, or kind of um, seek the advice of his mentor, who's uh, Jonathan, played by Jonathan Price, and um, shenanigans and whatnot ensue and if you like uh dark comedies based upon people who are too intelligent for their own good and end up destroying themselves by virtue <laughs> of their intelligence then you will enjoy this film um it's probably not like the kind of comedy you watch when you just want to veg but mm. uh that's not what this podcast is about this is about challenging you so i would definitely recommend going and watching listen up philip on uh that sounds good movie. i mean that one that one's not in my library at the moment because, again, uh, there's different regional variances. So uh, if you are in the American library or if you have a VPN, definitely jump on that madness. But if you have a different regional library, um, I can just say that I have Wings of Desire by Vim Vendors on mine. And it's oh, a fucking yeah. classic. It's amazing. And it's better than City of Angels. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, But I would say go see... Uh, wings of desire um if it is in your regional library uh go to movie.com slash owls at dawn you'll get a free 30-day trial 
So you can look through their library and you can see the treasure trove of options that are presented you, to you uh, just week after week after week because of that awesome rotation. So check it out, movie.com slash owls at dawn. Dude, what was that that sort of like alternative rock song that was huge in City of Angels? Back in the nineties, and I don't want the world was to it see Google Dolls? me, cause I don't think that they'd understand. <laughs> Is it Google Dolls? When everything's oh yeah made to be broken, <laughs> I just want you to know who I am. Oh my god, I fucking hate that song, <laughs> bro. That song like was my world for I, about I a week. I bet it was. <laughs> It's sentimental, and he's got that raspy rock lyric. It's like a power ballad. Oh, God, I loved it, man. Proof that consciousness is not a gift but a curse is the fact that I have probably most of that music video cemented into my mind. With Nick, because it's, it's clips from the video with like Nick Cage and yeah, exactly. Meg Ryan, and yeah. Oh, God. That song still gets me in the feels. <laughs> Well, you can also support us on Patreon if you go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Um, we have several different tiers which you can support us with, and there's a number of different Patreon goodies you can get um, in response, such as the monthly newsletter that we release every month with um, extra shitty minutes and sticky leaves and things that we're reading and articles that we find to have been uh, worthwhile to read. Um, you can also get access to the bonus episodes. We released the current one recently on the NBA playoffs, which was uh, my personal favorite of all the <laughs> Owls After Dark episodes that we've developed. That's, of course, a biased opinion. Mm, um, a little bit. And then also you can contribute to our patron-sponsored episodes, which we do every once in a while. We have a current poll up right now. We'll probably be ending that and closing it fairly soon. So I don't know if we'll have it closed up by the time this episode comes out, but I would... Well, if not, we have to run the actual poll now. So we took the suggestions, That's and right, now yeah. we have to actually run the poll. So um, this episode will be released on Monday, my time, which is like Sunday in the most of the world, um, unless you're also with me um, on this part of the world. Um, but if you're in like Western Europe or if you're in the United States or if you're in Latin America, shout out to the Brasileros listening. Um <laughs> If uh, then it'll come out for Sunday on you guys, and then the poll will be live at that point. So if you are a patron and you have access to, well, actually just any of the patrons, make sure you uh, go to vote um, in that poll that's going to be up. And that'll be up for about a week, and then we'll announce the winner in the following week's podcast for which episode is the patron-led podcast. And if you're not a patron, then get on that shit, yo. Yeah. We've mentioned before on the podcast that if you leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and you ask a question in your review, as long as we can answer it very briefly and it's not an absurd question or you know something too personal or whatever, then we'll try to answer it on the podcast. And we have two reviews to deal with this week. So this is going to be an extended little segment here, I guess. We would have one, but you were slacking on your job. so I was not Thomas? slacking on my job. That I had to reach out and smack you around a little bit. Good, good job, Thomas. Good he on Thomas. Dude, you're a fucking liar. <laughs> <laughs> it was a tech. It slipped between the technological cracks, as we would say. I yeah, it's just literally not on iTunes. So I don't know. So yeah, if you would do a review and it doesn't pop up or we don't address it, then trust me, I'm doing my due diligence. It's not showing up on iTunes. So go <laughs> ahead and just like contact us, like Tom did, and uh, make us aware of it because we'll for sure talk about it. On the podcast. Yeah. So speaking of that, Tom Lace, uh, the aforementioned Tom Lace, 
uh, asks, how do both of you manage to keep your reading lists and what oh. works best, I think, in terms of like a maybe a program or a method to use for reading lists? Uh, what's your strategy? Well, I think kind of the most obvious thing, first of all, I think most people probably already do this, but if you don't, it's definitely a thing to do. Just keep folders on your computer or on your reading device where you have things broken up into your different needs. Right. So certain academic things versus novels versus uh, certain things you have to read for a particular project. Keep all the texts in that folder. Um, and then maybe if you have trouble remembering, keep, you know, reminders set up on your phone for when you need to read things. I have um, a program on my phone called Wonderlist or Wunderlist. I think it might be German. And they uh, can set up reoccurring uh, reminders and timers for when certain things need to be done. And that's one way of doing it. I also use Scrivener for when I have larger projects and I want to keep um, all of the PDFs and texts that are related to the project that I'm working on together in one place. I think Scrivener is a great program. I'd recommend that to anyone as well. Mm. What do you think? Um, do, you, do, you don't, do you use um, like EndNotes or any of those things? You don't use, I mean, I guess Scrivener is kind of close, right? Yeah, I've heard great things about EndNotes. I've never, I haven't taken the dive yet, but probably at some point I will. Yeah. Yeah, I was using Scrivener for a while. Remember, I think I told you, I had a really good system for a bit. The problem is, is I'm just such an inconsistent motherfucker that like I'll have like three months or four months of just being crazy organized and disciplined with this stuff. And then I kind of let it slip. And so, I mean, that would be the biggest thing I would say is just get into a good habit, man. Like if if you're an organized human, it, it'll be easier for you. For me, that's just the perpetual battle is I'm constantly in the process of organizing, you know? Um, that that's just like faithful to your Deleuzian heritage, right? Like you want interparticularity <laughs> with all the different texts and you can't have this like linear, you know, set out path you have to follow. I know, but it really what does feel like, good when I am on that path, you know, like <laughs> it's like, a, it's like breathing uh, that fresh, cold mountain air every once in a while. I don't know if I always want to live in that weather, but it feels fucking fantastic when I'm in it. Um, but I was using Scrivener too. And, and in particular, I was using... I think it's like an older model, but you could basically, you could do like little, little note card type of, uh, summaries. Um, yeah. and so I organized like books, the same thing that you said, I had folders on my computer and I had all of these different folders within folders, within folders and subfolders. And, and they were always specific to either the project that I'm working on, like, this is for section one or chapter one, or this is for subsection whatever for this project. And so those resources would fit into that so that I would be able to remember like, oh God, wasn't there this article written by this person and it's about this. And so I, I would make sure that I was one, really specific in, in how I name all of my books, but also really specific with how I name the folders and subfolders and things like that. But then when I was kind of like going through um, and and creating these little note card summaries of the books that I read, that was a really nice thing. Now I I I, I haven't gotten in, I haven't been in that habit for the last I don't know, six or seven months, but it was kind of nice. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily the best thing for me, but maybe it would be. And I'm just being fucking lazy. I don't know. But basically, every time I would read either a chapter or a book, uh, I would put like a little summary on a on a kind of digital note card, and then 
um, I would alphabetize the titles. And then, of course, I'd be able to be like, oh, what was this article about? Or what was this book about? So that I would refresh my memory so I could quickly go and I could look and I could see and I could say, oh, that's what that book was about. Or that's what chapter one was about. Or particular chapters that I thought were important for my research. I could be like, oh, that's right. This book, chapter six. Okay. And then I would know to run to the book. And then I do 90% of my reading in ebooks anyway. So my books themselves are annotated like crazy online right, with like notes in the margins and things circled and highlighted, but I write a lot of notes in my ebooks on my laptop. So then I would also be like, oh, you have a note in chapter section, subsection, chapter four, subsection 4.3 about this, check that because it develops an idea or something like that in related to the text. So that's what I did. Um, and even though I don't have the note card system as intact right now, I still annotate my books really precisely. And I make sure that I'm like, oh, you know, go tie this note that you've written here in this section with this other note or cross-reference it with another text. I do a lot of that as well. And I find that to be better than just like marking up a physical book because there's more space than just the little margins of a book. Um, also, if you don't, some people don't like to mark up their books and fuck up their books. Um, and yeah, so, and then I know some people that just while they're reading, they have like notepads next to them and they just write things down. That's, that's another way of doing things as well to keep yourself organized. Yeah, one thing I do that I found to be very helpful, although it's pretty time consuming, and I think it actually helps um, in the long term, is I, I do all of my academic reading on my iPad, usually when I'm on the train or um, before uh, classes, before work, whatever. Um, and I take these like little one sentence summaries of each section of a chapter and then do a thesis summary of each chapter. That's about one sentence. Um, for everything that mm. I read academically. And I find that although it may add a lot of extra time because you're trying to think about how to word things correctly to be like, comprehensive in terms of reviewing what you just read, it actually makes me think about the overall point of what I just read rather than just mm. kind of running through the reading like you're reading a novel. You know, Think about the actual argument um, and how it's structured and how it actually works and to do that for every single thing that I read academically. And that also means I think you don't have to go back and read things more than once because if you want to remind yourself of the general argument of something, you just pull up your little note and there you got mm. like, you know, maybe 200, 250 words on, on a chapter and it perfectly summarizes it for you. You can read it in two minutes. Um, so I found that to be super helpful and you don't have to do that for everything you read, but especially for things that you find to be important or that are going to be relevant for your future academically, I think it's a pretty good idea. I think that's excellent, man. I do that do that um that that's really good i mean i so, think also just real quick this is more of a general thing and this is the hardest thing for me and it's something that i i want to completely get better at but don't feel so compressed by the time pressures that are imposed upon you you yes. will <laughs> you will but don't let it get to you too much because like troy was just saying it's going to be a little bit more um of a time suck, but that's more important than rushing through it just so you can get to the next thing. So you can just consume the next thing because you feel like everybody else has already read more than you. First it's of all, it's so hard not to do that, dude. It is. But first of all, uh, they're lying. Most of them, <laughs> they haven't read everything. They've read reviews. They've read snippets of it. They've read an article or they've read other people that are citing or them. So parroting so what other are, people have told them. Yes. So people lie. Uh, that's part of the academic game. So don't 
feel like, God, I, I, everybody just seems to know everything. They know more than me. And, and then secondly, I would say the qualitative value of struggling through a text and reading it slowly and doing what Troy does and, and writing like a one-sentence summary, that is going to be so much more valuable in the long run for your own development than just trying to consume everything because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses. So just try that. Yes, a really important thing about writing especially when you've just read something and you're trying to sort of summarize it in this way is it actually makes you learn it like the actual act of writing and thinking mm. of it in your own words and how to place it in your own form that's how you actually internalize it and sort of cement it or brand it into your mind so it's not simply about having the resource that even if you never looked at it again doing the actual writing will make you learn it in a way that you just you won't by just rolling your eyes over a bunch of words you know, what? I know we're spending a long time on this, but let me just say one last thing. You know what also really helps me? Drawing diagrams. One of the most profitable reading experiences I've ever had in my life was when I went through Foucault's The Birth of Biopolitics lecture series. And I had this massive, it was when I was in Dublin, and I had this massive whiteboard in my office. Like they basically took up the entire wall. And I would literally read a section like painstakingly slowly. I think I even talked about it on the podcast or maybe I just talked about it with you, but I would go up to the board and I would draw diagrams because I tend to spatialize things in my mind with visual images. And even though I'm a shit artist, um, <laughs> I, I would get up there and what I would do is I would I would even like talk out loud and I would, I would almost pretend that I was in like a dialogue with somebody trying to explain it. And even though I'm a shit visual artist, I'm a fantastic performance artist. So I would like mix <laughs> the two. And I was like doing like a performance where I was like talking and I was like, but it's this and then that. And I use my hands and then I would draw on the board and I have like notes. And then I took like screenshot, like, like photographs. And I actually have these photographs of all of these whiteboard diagrams. And I refer to them sometimes. And I am very familiar with that text and I feel like I understood that text and that experience of going through that text imprinted itself on me in a far greater way than just the average kind of reading and, and whatnot tends to do. So to find the thing that works for you, but that is something that actually really worked for me too, is, is like do the diagramming and then take pictures of it so you don't lose it. Um, so you can have that in your, in your files as well so you can refer to them. And the thing with diagrams, I remember having some pictures of diagrams uh, from whiteboards uh, on my phone, going back, you know, sometimes years later and being like, I have no idea what the fuck this means. <laughs> really? <laughs> I remember yeah. doing something like that with Baju, and I, <laughs> it was just totally incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. All right. What's the next question? <laughs> Our next question is from Alvar from Hong Kong. Hey, Alvar from Hong Kong. That's got to be one of the furthest away places we've ever had a podcast review from that's kind of closer to my time zone so yeah so alvar asks uh he first says that the he thinks about 30 percent of our episodes there's too much jargon and it's unintelligible but 70 percent mm. is excellent entertaining educational mm. so i appreciate that 70 30 is i think a, a good one for us to go for as far as sense to nonsense mm. um and he asks first what would you suggest to make the 30 percent more digestible and then the second question is, how would you design a philosophy curriculum for middle or high school? So first, any quick oh. suggestions about how to make the super jargony stuff that we talk about sometimes more digestible? Um, well, I mean, one, that there's always the challenge on our part of trying to make sure that we can be as effective communicators as possible. At the same time, there is a technical language in philosophy that um, 
is going to be foreign. It's like learning a foreign language. It's like being involved with any specialty. There is a sense in which you're viewing the world through a lens of a certain set of tools. And so what I would say is, one, kind of relating to what we were just saying earlier, don't feel the pressure of being overwhelmed by by your ignorance at this moment of certain terms. Like, don't be turned off by that and put off by it. Uh, kind of take part of the struggle of learning how these concepts and how these words relate. Um, I guess the biggest thing is that I think a lot of times is we get frustrated because we're like, what the fuck does that mean? And if it's if it's my fault because I'm kind of going off on one and I'm not being clear, well, then that's not your fault. Um, then I just keep, will perpetually try to get better at articulating, right? But if it is something where you're like, the, the these concepts, these terms, these phrases, this entire field is 30% or whatever the percentage is, um, kind of outside of your intellectual wheelhouse, just one, just don't feel the pressure that you are like somehow not living up to a standard uh, and just be patient and, uh, and studying. And trust me, the weird thing is, is even though you might not get it all at the moment, it still gets in there sometimes into your mind. And it might just be in a germinal stage, but it comes to flower at a later stage. And that'll actually be my shitty minute, kind of in a minute. So you'll hear me talk about some of my frustrations this week. But um, don't be afraid of the hard pain. It's like when you're working out and you plateau. And you're like, fuck, I'm doing all this stuff. And I'm in pain. And I'm not seeing any output. I'm not gaining muscle. Or I'm not losing weight. Or I'm not toning up. Or whatever it is. My, My numbers aren't improving. But some for some reason you know after two months of beating your head against the wall all of a sudden you make progress and all of that time that you thought you were beating your head against the wall you weren't you were making progress you just maybe the relationship between your expectation and the material reality kind of shifted because you weren't seeing the type of gains that maybe you had seen previously um so just try not to get super frustrated and beat yourself up about it just keep doing the diligent work reading through things thinking through things ask us questions um read the history of philosophy read introductory uh, texts listen to introductory podcasts like philosophize this um, things like that that'll help. You know, check out Wisecrack, our videos. I think they can really give a nice introduction to philosophical terms and concepts and frames of thinking. Um, what about you, Troy? Yeah, I'd reiterate everything you just said. Then also add, you know, philosophy is, again, like you said, a technical language. And the way you learn a language is you figure out some of the simple parts, right? What does yes mean? What does no mean? What does burger mean like when you're hungry or whatever right mm-hmm. and then you define the terms the rest of the terms you know you, or you interdefine the rest of the terms right relative mm-hmm. to the things that you know and that means kind of jumping in and doing the uh what's the famous myth of like rebuilding the lifeboat while you're already on the water yeah yeah i love that one yeah and it, that's very much how it works um so don't be discouraged if sometimes you feel like you're in the cloud that's everybody's experience Mm. at one time or another um and even when you're like end up with your you know 30 years of tenure track in philosophy there's going to be points where you're like i have no idea what the fuck this guy's talking about um (laughs) so that that should be like a an encouraging thing right oh it's a thing for me to learn eventually Mm. um so the struggle is kind of part of it right philosophy is unique in that it's not always meant to to give you an idea as simply as possible it's in many cases trying to challenge a very intuitive idea that you have. And mm-hmm. that's not necessarily how our minds are built to work. Um, it's challenging to the way our minds kind of naturally work. And you know, anyone who likes philosophy likes it for that reason, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think I'd just say 
the, the struggle and the work is part of the reward. So don't be discouraged. It's just more to eventually learn. And if you can grab onto some things that 70% or whatever, um, eventually you can start interdefining the rest of the nonsense uh, with respect mm. to that. So how about that second about, question about uh, yeah, philosophy the high school? Yeah, philosophy curriculums for secondary schools. You got any ideas? Um, I mean, only general ideas. Um, gosh, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, I think I think using stuff like uh, like Wisecrack or there's another YouTube channel called Now and Then. Um, there are people on YouTube that have animated videos that can be good or that are doing like five or ten minute. Not, they're not lectures, but kind of analyses or explanations. Those things are really useful. Um, I don't know. I, I would say don't be afraid of using film. I think film can be really helpful. You know, films like The Matrix, for example. There are certain films that are extremely philosophical and that are intentionally philosophical and that also um, are entertaining and fun. And they allow you to engage with concepts in a way that isn't just boring and stale and technical bullshit jargon, but that is kind of the whole point, that there's like an erotic element to this. I don't mean erotic in the sense that you like get sexually turned on, but it's like pre-sexual. It's the thing that even flowers into what would be sexual eroticism. But there's this idea of eros, this like spark of life, this desire um, that uh, that is so missing in so much of academic philosophy, but that is sort of embedded in the history of philosophy and the emergence and the origins of philosophical thought that you can find um, in a variety of sources. And so don't be afraid to look at things that are like pop culture, you know, uh, music and things like that. There are all kinds of uh, professors out there that are trying to work on inventive curricula that they can uh, integrate these sorts of things. So I would say look at those kind of like non-standard sources uh, would be one thing that I would say. What do you think? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. You know, I, I taught high school for a while um, and I didn't teach philosophy, but I certainly thought a lot about how to involve philosophical concepts into teaching kids. And, you know, I think just from a, an actual philosophical level, I think kids are naturally philosophical thinkers. Mm. And I think a lot of our culture teaches them not to be or tells them that those philosophical thoughts and intuitions are garbage or worthless or stupid or funny. Mm. And they might be all those things uh, at certain points in time. But I also think that, you know, they're natural. We have questions about the way that the world works and who we are and what we are. And we have them from a very, very early age. You know, mm. I think that kids have questions about artificial intelligence about computers all the time. I think they have questions about animals and their status in our lives. I think they have questions about what it means to be a human being. Um, I think they have questions about even abstract things like, you know, mathematics and numbers and infinity sometimes. Um, and I think you can sort of, you probably can't lay out like a formal logic for them and try to teach them that way. That's not super helpful. But things as basic as intuition pumps, I think, are very helpful for kids. Mm. Just kind of ask them philosophical questions as simply as possible and see what intuitions pop up in their heads. And then if the kids have different intuitions, then all of a sudden you, are, you have a philosophical dilemma on your hand and you can just go for it and explore it. And if they all mm. have the same intuition, challenge it, right? 
um, give a different answer and see if they have any reason why it might not be the case. I think especially with moral theory and ethics, kids really want to think about some difficult uh, situations. And I know that there's been lots of like moral psychology literature that deals with kids as young as three years old and the kind of moral intuitions mm. they have about how they should treat their classmates in like preschool, right? And mm. what makes a thing wrong? Is it because the teacher tells you or because of some other reason? If it's some other reason, why is that? And they have answers to these things. Like they think about them mm-hmm. and they want to think about them. And they want to know the answers, right? And that's what it means to have genuine philosophical like inquiry in your nature. They already are thinking about them, like you said, you know? I mean, they're thinking about it on the playground when so-and-so takes an extra marble and they're like, well, that's not fair. Or when they're trying to figure out, is this Pog, I'm using things from my childhood, I don't know if kids use Pogs today, but is this Pokemon card or whatever, you know, like, is this worth a trade in that one? And should we trade? Is my mom going to get mad if I trade? No, I can't do that. Like, there are all these moral and ethical and power dynamics that are already there in the elementary mind so to kind of explore those things in a classroom setting where they can actually engage with them intentionally is um is not something that's going to be foreign to their their dispositions already and then of course you can show them a clip from the good place where chidi's freaking out about some sort of moral <laughs> dilemma and you probably can't show them one that's all bloody though no 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 not one of those just one of the nice little <laughs> clips you know because they say fork and you know little kids it's okay <laughs> parents won't get offended if you know, Christian I think Bell's they will saying, actually. What the fork? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, the kids are going to come home and be like, "What the fork is going on?" And the parents will be like, "Whoa, where did you learn that language?" And it's like, "No, I said fork, mom." <laughs> and then you can discuss what actually makes bad words bad. There you go, it's philosophical perfect. question. You're welcome, children. Yeah, I'll just add really quick. There's a book that I really love that I read a number of years ago that has kind of shaped my thinking on this. It's called The If Machine by Peter Worley, and it deals with a number of. Um, different approaches towards philosophical inquiry in uh, like primary and secondary school. Um, it's kind of built for teachers to build the curriculum. But I think even if you wanted to just read it for fun, it's it's really engaging and a fun way of thinking about how to talk to sort of, you know, novices in philosophy. It could even, it works just as well with kids as with people who just are adults but haven't studied philosophy at all and are interested in it. Mm. Sounds good. All right. Shall we uh, jump into the first major segment of the podcast yeah that was a long intro yeah man so you know every week before we start getting into our main topic we got to do the part of the podcast called the shitty minute this is where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding (laughs) our gears this week and austin you got to tell me what's got you down well so i don't really i don't really feel like ranting and raving for two reasons one i went to sleep last night listening to a bunch of musical theater songs and I went to sleep in bliss. So for people who don't know, I was a musical theater major actually when I first went to university and uh, I've kind of grown up in and around the theater. Musical theater is one of my central loves. I probably have three or four things that are the nearest and dearest to my heart and theater and in particular musical theater is actually one of them. Um, so I, I'm kind of in a joyous mood that I feel like even if I rant and rave, then it's going to take me out of that state of bliss. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got to do it also, for the people though, man. I know. I know. And so you're right. So I, so fuck me, Austin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
but no, so so the way that I frame this is going to be more, and it's funny because it actually kind of ties into what we were saying earlier. I, I mentioned it actually when we were talking, I think, to uh, to Thomas's question, but it also ties into, um, what was the, the second question person's name? Alvar. Alvar's question as well. And it is that uh, I had a rough week this week intellectually, like not in terms of life and happiness and things like that although this does wear on me because it makes me feel like a dummy but i had a week where i just was i was plateauing to continue that sort of working out metaphor where it felt like i was hitting the gym hard and it felt like i was just not making gains and for me the way that it manifested itself is that i was just an idiot that i just i couldn't understand things i felt scattered I felt like I didn't have a handle on things. I felt like I couldn't tie things together. I felt like, and I think it was because I was overwhelmed by the sheer vastness of everything that is in my mind at the moment. And and what that did is that translated into then senses of inadequacy, also when reading like the specific literature that I was engaging with. And, and part of this is because I'm reading a text by a dude that, it's it's a little bit infuriating in the the way that it's written because it's extremely scattered and and using strange language and whatnot and it's also kind of using language in a field that I'm not as familiar with uh, technological language of finance so I'm learning a lot about mathematical pricing models and things like that that just are not things that I have been studying I didn't go to business school I you know didn't do like a, an MBA in finance so I'm not as familiar with how to price derivatives. Um, as somebody who has gone through that. So in a way, I'm kind of learning that from a sort of philosophical and political economic lens, which is kind of probably coming at it from a different angle. And so there's a learning curve there. But but I think it was it was just one of those weeks where I was just struggling, man. And um, and it just fucking sucked. And I hate I hate feeling inadequate, you know? And I deal with imposter syndrome all the time. So for people out there that are listening... Like it, it is common, but I deal with it all the time. And this week it just was really, really contracted into everything that I was doing. You know, it just felt like it was uh, like I was carrying it on top of my head. It was like a burden in my brain. And and then of course, then I start beating myself up. And then when you beat yourself up, then you have to manage that. And you start have to, you have to tell yourself like, no, man, you're not a fucking idiot. This is tough. You're, and I, I've gone through these before. So I know, I know what I'm going through. But it doesn't matter. You can rationalize it all you want. That doesn't take away the affective power of feeling like shit. And so then there's managing that, which then it it decreases your vitality. Or for me, it decreases my vitality and then my motivation. And when my motivation isn't peaked, then what that also does is that means that like I'm not as intellectually engaged, which means I'm not as turned on when I'm reading the text, which then is only sort of like a vicious circle which then makes me not able to consume the literature as well. And then I'm like, Jesus, man. And then you just feel more like an idiot lost in the sea of vast philosophical thought. And it sucks. Fucking, it's one of the, the, I just, you know, it's tough. I hate that shit. I mean, there's a happy silver lining through this. All of a sudden, for some reason, at like 11 p.m. on Thursday night, this is Saturday morning for me, um, the cloud lifted and I felt like a normal, competent human again. Uh, and so Friday was lovely and now it's Saturday morning and I feel good. And then, you know, musical theater helped, um, and watching some sports and <laughs> shit like that is always great. Um, but, uh, but yeah, man, I was kind of, 
Was it, I was in the intellectual dumps this week. Fucking, I hate that shit, man. I'm sorry, man. That sucks. Oh no. Do you experience those moments? Oh yeah, dude, for sure. Um, and it just sucks so much that you know it's you can be fully aware that the thoughts that come up and the way your mind works is totally irrational and is based upon millions of years of blind evolution and is not at all bent towards truth or accuracy. And that does literally nothing to change how you feel about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you're absolutely right that finding ways to cope is the way to do it. Right? Like you can't just mm-hmm. convince yourself to stop feeling on the way you have to have methods that are tried and true and that help you cope and kind of get you back to a good place. Like um, you mentioned it, but what I tend to do in those situations is just like unplug for a little bit, you know, um, mm-hmm. go and watch some basketball and just like focus my mind on some of the thing that I love or mm-hmm. listen to music or uh, play a video game or something, but something mm-hmm. active, you know, I'm not watching a TV show where I can just sit back and my mind is wandering back to whatever the thing is. Right. It's gotta be mm-hmm. something that I'm either actively watching or that I can actually participate in. Um, to get my mind off of it. And you know, your mind works pretty wonderfully to kind of take this chaos, this like de-networked chaos that exists in your mind when you're in the dumps and it reconnects all those things when you're sleeping, when you're doing something else, when you're taking a shower, when you're whatever, right? Uh, cooking, making food. And then you all of a sudden realize, oh man, I'm, I'm like back into it now that I've done that thing. Um, mm. So yeah, I think it's important to like, unplug sometimes not for you know weeks at a time because you'll end up you know even worse off in the dumps but for little little snippets in of time it's it's good to do that so you can be strengthened for later it's like use your working out metaphor again dude what happens if you like work out three times a day you gotta let the body rest yeah you gotta rest and let those muscles reconnect themselves or whatever the fuck happens right do some sciencey shit yeah yeah and i think so much of our anxiety comes from a sort of disparity between like our present state and our expectations, right? That there is this, we are these kind of like uh, predictor expectation memory machines. And, you know, it. you have those moments when you are just making these amazing gains and you feel like you're learning everything and you feel like you understand the universe. <laughs> you're like, I get it now. I understand everything. And then there are those moments where you're like, I don't even know what the fuck I think about what I want to do tonight, you know, and you're overwhelmed and you can fluctuate between those extremes. And uh, I think so much of it comes from external pressures and especially in the academic world or the just the world of of being immersed in a culture of people who are working through vast amounts of problems, whether it's in the political scene, the economic scene, the philosophical scene. I know various other, if you are an engineer and you're working on some sort of project, I mean, whatever it is that is your thing, there are those external pressures that your field or that your horizon are imposing upon you. And to not be too overwhelmed and to succumb to those pressures, to feel those exigencies as like bearing down on you, um, to try to, to to circumvent that or cut through that is a, a really difficult challenge, but I think really important and for me a worthwhile task to just pause and be like, hey, you know, you don't necessarily need to live up to those standards all the time. Like, yeah, it's good to have that external motivation, but at the same time, 
like we said earlier, you know, imposter syndrome is oftentimes a result of not realizing that everybody else is kind of struggling with this too because everyone is trying to perform. They're trying to play. They're living in bad faith. They're trying to play as though they're more competent than they are a lot of times. And that's not saying that there aren't fucking people who are geniuses who do read everything and have read everything and do seem to know everything. They might. They might. But you know what, motherfuckers? I bet those people don't know shit about the NFL draft. Or I don't know... <laughs> They don't know shit about musical theater. They don't know shit about, you know, underground hip hop from the 90s or whatever it is that could also be something that is a really valuable thing to learn. So, Isn't it said that Hegel was the last person who was able to read everything? Is it Hegel? Yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that. The problem is, too, is there's just too much. I yeah, mean, that's the thing. Right? <laughs> there's literally too much because more people have done research and more people are doing PhDs where like when somebody like Hegel was alive, you could conceivably get a grip on all of German philosophy, right? Like it, it and like on, yeah, on all the natural sciences and have pretty, you know, basic comprehensive knowledge of what's going on in the sciences. Yeah. Yeah. Even just branch it out. Yeah, you, absolutely. You could. But now if you were to even be like, like not even just philosophy, but Austin, can you, ever in your lifetime read everything within like the subgenre of German idealist philosophy. No, no. <laughs> like I will barely be able to scratch the surface on sort of certain arguments within that field because there's just too much. There are too many people that are writing papers now and in the amount of time that it takes me to consume a text and really work through it, you know, papers have been written, new books have been written. And then, of course, you're talking about going back into the history of things and those things referring to other things. And, it, you know, you can't you can't allow yourself to get too overwhelmed in that sea. That was my shitty minute this week. Kind of a rough week, but I think I, uh, I overcame the plateau and I felt some I felt some gains, bro, by the end of the week. So, <laughs> you know, what else will help, dude. What? Talking about some some barber. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so we're digging into the fourth chapter of the book here, Christianity, Religion, and the Secular. And a real brief recap of what's happened so far. Um, The book on diaspora we've been discussing, the first chapter talked about um, the concept of imminence, which Barbara gets from Deleuzian philosophy. That's correct, right? I think so. Deleuzian Spinoza. Yeah. Um, And this concept of like, Eminence being as this interparticular con- reciprocal constitution um, that we've talked about in previous episodes. You can go back to those if you want a more of a thirty uh, percent jargon. Yeah, go. Yeah, but we we <laughs> d- dealt with that shit in detail in previous episodes, so you can go back and check out the backlog. Um, chapter two talked about the concept of diaspora, um, which is obviously a religious concept, and it's Barber basically taking this notion of interparticularity and kind of counterposing the way that uh, Christianity is kind of typically or contemporarily thought of with the way it would be if we had this notion of interparticularity instead. So it's sort of a challenge to that traditional notion. Um, And then last time we talked about uh, Pauline theology, uh, theology of the Apostle Paul, and um, the way that he developed his notion of of Christianity basically and um, how this sort of imminent uh, form of Christianity would differ from it. Um, today, we're talking about sort of a really overarching concept going from 
um, the kind of birth of Christianity to the birth of the concept of religion to the birth of the concept of the secular. So it's very wide ranging and um, bird's eye view, but I actually appreciated that because it gave, as you said before earlier in the show, the a sort of linearity to this chapter that's didn't really exist in the previous chapters. And I think it makes it a little bit easier to follow. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I totally think so. And um, it kind of enfolds them into each other, right? It's like, okay, let's talk about Christianity in this way that he wants to as being uh, the the discourse that invents religion. And then, okay, then let's talk about what religion is. And then let's talk about what the secular is. And then let's see how Christianity and religion relate. And then let's see how Christianity and the secular relate. And then how all three of them relate. And then he kind of takes you right up to this limit point where he says, okay, so now that we've really sort of set up the problem here and we've said this is how Christianity, religion, and the secular relate, now we need to have this alternative uh, orientation within his overall project. And then he kind of like dangles us kind of off the cliff and says, well, that's what we're going to do in the final chapter. Even though he kind of hints at it, so you kind of know what he's going to do, but now the final chapter is figuring out how he's going to do it. So it was really nice to kind of kind of take us to a crescendo and then leave us with a to-be-continued. Yeah, this transition, or I think the word he uses here is transmutation from Christianity to religion to the secular, it's kind of dialectical, no? Yeah, because he does, he does talk about that a little bit. He talks about the, the kind of uh, Hegelian notion of like the sublation that is going on here. And here's the mm. thing. So in philosophical circles, Hegel is oftentimes opposed to Deleuze. Hegel is the thinker of the negative. The dialectic requires a negative differential relation, whereas Deleuze is oftentimes viewed as a thinker who is completely critical of the negative, and he is very critical of Hegel. That Deleuze is a thinker of, we might say, positivity or of creation, of unboundedness, right? So can you be than, critical though? Isn't that kind of negativity right there? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a productive criticism. <laughs> See, I know, and so like like Barber even gets at this at the end where he's like. Uh, Right, he's like there's a sort of like critical moment to the concept of these like terms of identity, these identarian notions, but then at the same there's also a productivity within it. Which I felt I and I don't know, I, I wish I could talk with him, because I wonder if there's a little bit of either a confusion or maybe let's just say because confusion implies like some sort of like judgment. And so let's let's not frame it that way, but there's like an ambivalence between a dialectical approach and a more like productive imminence approach. And to be fair, I think that, that that ambivalence is in Deleuze, and I think that ambivalence is in Hegel, and I think that part of the, one of the ways you can uh, speak of that is by looking at the Spinozist influence that is in Hegel. So it depends on how Spinozistic your reading of Hegel is, I think, that will impinge on this here. But there's an ambivalence in this chapter between a dialectical approach and a more sort of like properly what we might call a Deleuze approach, Deleuzean approach, or this pr approach of thinking from imminence. And I didn't really know how to situate it. Is the Deleuzean critique of Hegel not really concerned with not just the like negativity aspect or negation aspect, but with the kind of like ne necessitarian reading of Hegel that exists? What's the necessitarian reading? 
I mean, the idea that the, um, the, uh, what do you call it? The, I'm trying to remember what it is, in itself, for itself, and in and for itself, right? Those three moments um, mm-hmm. that they sort of necessarily unfold. So you, whatever exists in, in itself uh, sort of necessitates that the for itself opposes it, and then the in and for itself synthesizes those two moments. Um, that, mm. that, that sort of unfolding is a sort of necessary or determinant aspect. And that seemed to me like it was always the one of the main things that the Deleuzian tradition sort of uh, takes issue with. Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think that's right. And um, it's, it's a linearity and it's a teleology that Deleuze would find problematic, but I think what we could say even more foundationally, what he's criticizing is any philosophy that operates from what we might call a philosophy of identity. And so we could, which let's is all say, of them. which is all of them except for what he thinks is his philosophy, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> all the rest um, of them. Yeah. Right, all the rest of them. Let's say tracing back to Plato and Aristotle, but particularly let's say Plato, uh, Plato is kind of, in the Heideggerian sense, establishing metaphysics that um, that you establish this uh, th- this is the dogmatic metaphysics maybe of like Kant's critique that there is this um, transcendent standard that is outside that is beyond that is the originary that is the frame by which either the world or the subject or discourse measures itself and and defines itself. And then, of course, that reaches a sort of problematic point in Kant where he then says, well, we can never have access to the absolute, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that all those things are just dogmatic. And so I think Deleuze takes seriously that Kantian critique, but rather than doing the Hegelian move, which is trying to move through those uh oppositions or contradictions between the phenomena and the noumena. Deleuze wants to sort of like reject that framework altogether and think about uh, philosophical foundations from a non-foundational realm of diffusion, which is the philosophy of difference for him. So he sees Hegel as sort of like working from the wrong first principles to begin with. And so because of that, Hegelian dialectic is always going to reproduce the very conditions that it can't actually ultimately overcome, that themselves are inherently insufficient or problematic because they're wedded to this, in Derridian language, metaphysics of presence, you know, that sort of like dogmatic metaphysics where there's that outside of thinking the absolute. And so whenever you're trying to think the absolute, you're trying to think the objective thing, the thing that is really out there, um, how do you do that? And... Deleuze is very critical of people who are trying to think the absolute uh, in the dogmatic metaphysical sense. So, um, I mean, that's kind. Yeah, go ahead. Wouldn't Deleuze be fine with the idea of thinking the absolute, but changing what the absolute is by saying that? Because his claim is an, ultimately an ontological one, right? That yeah, we actually can contra Kant think the absolute, but then that absolute isn't this isn't absolute if absolute means eternal and unchanging objective reality right it's actually yeah no constantly changing and actually is defined as change as sort of differential constitution is like the term they've been using a lot in this barber book right yeah yeah exactly it's it's the approach to thinking the absolute you're right and it's how it's it's really ultimately how do you deal with kant i think is the central issue hegel deals with it one way it always comes back to kant man 
And, I mean, that's why it's sometimes referred to as post-Kantian continental philosophy, right? And it's not um, just continental, man. Or, well, the, no, it's not. The yeah. More you, yeah, the more you dig into analytic stuff, it's it's all going back to Kant. It is. It is. Um, He's the last figure both the traditions share. And I think that really that's, like, some people kind of trace the divergence to sort of more recent uh, disputes, but that that's really it, right? It's how do you deal with the problems uh, that Kant established that can really kind of demarcate the continental tradition from the analytic tradition, I think, too. You can kind of say, okay, how is Quine addressing the problems in Kant versus how is somebody like um, Husserl addressing them? And mm-hmm. I think that, that that will really kind of create an interesting point of diversion where you can understand where they, they go askew. But also I think that really creates a nice point for productive construction as well, you know? Um, so I kind of like, I like to triangulate via Kant. Yeah, I think it's super helpful. So uh, next Parliamentary Book Club, we're doing Critique of Pure Reason page by page. <laughs> that will be brilliantly entertaining podcasting. <laughs> uh, no, we can't. I've, I've actually, I've, I've, I actually, now I'm kind of, I want to. <laughs> yeah, that would be the greatest jump the shark moment for a podcast. <laughs> Sorry, movie. Uh, you are no longer going to be sponsoring us. Because <laughs> we used to have tens of thousands and now we have five sponsors. <laughs> Or five All listeners. Right. <laughs> so let's talk about um, these inventions of religion in the secular here. Okay. So Barber's argument basically, is, as I could conceive it, is he starts out by talking about how the Christianity um, has to deal with this or kind of in a sense invent this new concept of religion. And the idea there isn't that the term or the idea or the concept didn't exist before Christianity did, but the sort of previous terms or the previous content of that term religion and religio and cultus and stuff like that was a sort of given or unquestioned cultural set of practices, right? It wasn't about truth and falsity. It wasn't about belief. It wasn't right. Nothing was really correct or incorrect or right or wrong. It was just your particular given set of cultural practices and you just did those things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of kind of study in the sociology and anthropology and philosophy of religion today is trying to recapture that notion because it's not fully lost. Right? A lot of religions today, um, around the world especially, kind of have kept that um, that notion. So that, that's not something that's totally alien, I think, to people today as it maybe would have been in like the heights of the Enlightenment discussion of religion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Barber's claim is that, and he gets this from, uh, was it Boyeran? Boyarin? Yeah, I Boyarin, I've I've always said, but yeah, Daniel, Daniel Boyarin, Boyarin. Yeah. yeah, the notion from him is that um Paul introduces this sort of new spiritual plane that supersedes the material and cultural plane that religion used to signify. Um mm-hmm. such that identity is no longer, according to the Pauline tradition, given by birth, but it's chosen and marked instead of by these material signifiers like circumcision or tradition or your given culture, but by correct belief or orthodoxy. So Christianity is unique in being concerned with believing the right things, um, which then has a different way of signifying difference between groups, right? It's not because Mm. you're from a different culture, but because you're the right belief. And obviously Christianity needs to have something like this because it changes from being largely Jewish to largely Greek. 
mm. um, over this time. And Paul's especially concerned with that transition from a Jewish religion to a, a largely Greek one. Um, mm. They don't share the cultural practices, so it has to be orthodoxy that they share instead. Mm, um, yeah. And with that comes the idea of wrong belief, right? If right belief exists, you have to have the uh, concomitant wrong beliefs, um, which are heresy from within the tradition, and then the false religions, which are outside. Mm. Yeah, this is this is really interesting to me. Um, I know you're not going to like this because uh, <laughs> you don't. I love like it Heidegger. when you preface with that. Yeah, but did you say I'm a hater? No, you don't like Heidegger. Oh, okay. You're not That's a okay. hater. You're like the least hater person I know. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a hater when it comes to Heidegger, though. You are a hater when it comes to Heidegger. <laughs> so yeah, you're a hater. Um, but but one of the things I think that that is valuable in kind of framing, and this just helps me think through things, is that um, I, this shift from like tradition, like cumulative tradition, to belief also seems to fit really well within something that Heidegger talks about in this shift from um, aletheia to correctness. And the difference is, is that in for Heidegger, he traces this to a division between like the pre-Socratics to then like post-Socratic philosophy or the, the introduction then of metaphysics for him in the post-Socratics, right? But that in the pre-Socratics, there was this notion of uh, truth as being that which is kind of brought forth, that which is unconcealed. Now, in every un unconcealment, in every revealing, let's say, there's also a covering, right? Um, so there is this sort of like ambivalence, this paradoxical, almost contradictory, let's say, experience. Um, and this also ties into his discussion of Das Nicht and the nothing, but we don't have to go into all that shit. But the interesting thing is that this shift then from tradition as being concerned with like this ambivalent standing forth of objects in the world that kind of stand out forth from the void that are presented to us in their ambivalent nature. They're, um, uh, I was talking about this, I think, before we started recording. recording I, I heard Hubert Dreyfus refer to Heidegger as kind of advocating something called absorbed coping, which is this idea that like, you know, like when you go to open the door, you're not trying to open the door. As soon as you start thinking about trying, you're then kind of thinking through this this process of like, what is the correct way to do it? What is the right way to do it? But rather you just kind of do it because I'm talking to you and while I'm doing that, I'm twirling my pen and there's this like absorbed coping, this absorbed dealing with the world around me, right? I thought and absorbed he, coping was a cure song, but okay. <laughs> it does sound like it. <laughs> How do you deal with capitalism, Wolfgang Streck? You listen to the cure, absorbed coping. <laughs> um, but um, uh. But then this shift then towards belief seems to kind of map onto, at least analogously, to Heidegger's then uh, introduction of this notion of correctness being the primary way that truth is understood in the metaphysical age, like post-Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, etc. And that what ends up becoming important now is that things, um, that there is like a subject-object relation, there's an inside-outside relation. And that truth then is concerned to, in terms of like a correspondence as whether or not things actually match with the state of affairs that is out there. And so there's this like uh, relationship between the thing and the thing that it's supposedly referring to. And so you get all of these like other later developments in uh, like semiotics and in structural linguistics about like the reference and sign and, and all these various things that kind of have been developed post 
um, metaphysical age. And I think there's something really interesting here. It's almost as though like religion previously existed in a pre-metaphysical world uh, in terms of uh, of tradition or, or cumulative cultural tradition or whatever it is in like this pre-metaphysical frame, but that belief introduces like this metaphysics of transcendence. And in order to have right belief, there has to be a sort of operation by which you can determine what right belief is versus wrong belief and that Christianity's answer to that through belief is by erecting then what Barber calls like a transcendent plane, right? And I thought that that was kind of interesting. I don't know if that helps you at all or confuses things, but I think there's something really interesting in kind of figuring out like what is it that is taking place in this shift? There's actually like, there's a metaphysical shift or um, a shift from like a certain type of metaphysical thinking to a different type of metaphysical thinking. It's not just like, uh, oh, it's just a change in thought. But no, there's actually like a, a change in like the entire horizon of meaning that's taking place as well. And that it's not just about practices and cultists and being involved in your community and being involved in tradition that goes back thousands of years. But no, now we need to concern ourselves with what right belief is by establishing standards, originary standards that are the absolute fixed positions by which everything else is judged. And that is what is new in this shift in post-Pauline Christianity. Yeah, I think this really gets to the issue of why of the like one of the major problems I have with Heidegger. And it's taking a very important, valid point and then making it the biggest fucking deal in the world <laughs> to the point where it's like, okay, this no longer actually is valid because you've just mm. enlarged it to be the most important thing. It's basically like a person who comes home and is already upset and then they see that like one of the dishes didn't get fully cleaned. And rather than just pointing it out and being like, we, we should clean this dish, it's going to get kind of nasty, making a valid point, they freak the fuck out and claim that like their roommate or whomever or their partner is just destroying the house and there's going to be diseases. And look, there's basically like ants are just like marching onto our house right now to envelop it. And it's like, bro, you just lost all credence by, by just enlarging that point beyond belief. And I think the analog here is, um, yes, there's a change in terms of the prominence that right belief has between the sort of pre and post, you know, Pauline um, change from religion. But that doesn't mean that the people beforehand didn't have a concept of right belief, that, that, that they didn't ever have this like transcendent plan by which they judged the accuracy of their statements about the world. They did. Absolutely. I think, I think everybody, I think it's naturally human to do that. Um, but it can mean that sort of the prominence or like the logical priority of that changed, right? So that religion mm. had a place for right belief, but you know what? It was more of like a speculative thing. You mm. find this in like rabbinic Judaism a lot, right? There's tons of concern with right belief and knowing the right things about the world. And it's so much fun to speculate about that mm. stuff. But Good then point. ultimately it's not that important, Right, it's it's fun and it's enjoyable because it's not really that important, and because you can't know anything, and it's all going to be mystery anyway, right? Um, and whereas, like this kind of um, post-Pauline Christianity that I think Barbara's talking about elevates right belief to the point of you need to have it to be saved, like you need to have it to get eternal life. That's elevating right belief to the utmost priority, right? Well, but so um, isn't and that's going to affect everything else you do as well, right? But so isn't couldn't we say then that the same problem that Heidegger is is saying that like 
Plato made, that Plato did, is kind of similar to what Paul is, uh, or what Barbara is saying that Christianity did, right? That it's saying, like, in order to have access to the forms, you must therefore do X. Well, similarly with Christianity, in order to have access to heaven, in order to be a part of the in crowd, you must therefore do X, you know, have right belief. Isn't there yeah. something similar going on there? Isn't there a similar problematic set up there? Yeah, I think so. And that's the valid point about, about the yeah. dish, right? And I think Barbara does an excellent job, actually. This is probably my favorite chapter so far in this book in mm. sort of applying the concept here because he, he doesn't make the huge claim, the huge Heideggerian claim, right? Which about, would be which would be what? That like nobody thought about this way until Christianity came around. Or just like it, it changed the notion of thought of the people, right? Ah. It, it's sort of like um like a like the kind of li- linguistic determinism mm. um, or a linguistic idealism that sometimes you see in Heidegger. Sometimes you don't. And when you don't, I think Heidegger makes totally valid points. Yes. Um, but then, yes, yeah, sometimes it gets into that, you know, like overreaction phase. And I think Barbara does a great job here by pointing out how, you know, Judaism um, has to get reconstituted after this invention of religion, right? Um, but then Judaism kind of survives as... Uh, and, and like remnants of it of the previous Judaism survive by not focusing so much on belief. And you know you can find today um, many many Jews who are atheists and many Jews who are have very strict ideas on what you have to believe to be a Jew if you're if you're like Orthodox or whatever. And then Jews who are totally a religious, but then they still would call themselves Jewish. And there's sort of an identity there. So um, I think. Barbara does a great job of applying this concept um, in a helpful way and really getting to what the change actually was without making some like grand metaphysical claim about like, what it means to be a human. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, did you, when you were an undergrad, did you ever have a moment or just in your face, did you have a moment where you were like, bro, it's not about orthodoxy, it's about orthopraxy? Oh, dude, that was probably like a whole like six months where I probably said that every day. <laughs> Everybody has that phase, right? So I was thinking that totally when I was reading this. Uh, there's this section where he talks about that Christianity had to remake religion in the image of Christianity. Yeah. Right? And what he means by that is that Christianity needed to establish the criteria, which is that right belief is how you are entered into this spiritual community because it's now no longer about the identity markers of Torah or circumcision or observing the Sabbath or whatever. But now there's this spiritual community. Well, how do you become a part of the spiritual community? It's through right belief. So it's through orthodoxy, right? True religion is right belief, uh, Barber says. And I remember I went through a phase where I was so into it. And I'm like, that's right. It's not about right belief, but it's about orthopraxy. And I just thought that was kind of funny because I remember that being – so important. And I actually, oddly enough, I kind of see that in certain political movements today as well that are trying to be like, hey, guys, let's not be so nitpicky about certain intellectual things, but it's just about praxis, man. Got to do that praxis. That's like a joke on like Chapel Trap House, right? That's good praxis, man. Oh, I don't really listen anymore. If you like punch so. a Nazi or you spray paint something. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Some quotes from yeah. Marx. It's good praxis. Yeah. and But I think that kind of falls into the same trap. Right, because it's still operating according to the idea of the right, the measure. Well, yeah, it's also like you're trying you're trying very hard to convince somebody of the idea of orthopraxy 
being logically prior to orthodoxy. Right. You see the, the internal contradiction there? Yeah, that's a contradiction, right. Well, And <laughs> I actually think this fits kind of interestingly into what Barber does with religion and then secularism. It's almost like orthopraxy is the secularism to Barber's orthodoxy of religion, right? Like it's still operating from that, well, here's the originary transcendent plane that we have access to. Um, so that's kind of the internal contradiction is that it's still establishing itself as operating according to having control over kind of like defining the boundaries of that which is right and that which is wrong. But it's not aware of its metaphysical presuppositions. Can you say more about that? Yeah, it just it, it seems that um, – about the orthopraxy thing or about just kind of like the being ignorant of its metaphysical presuppositions? Yeah, that latter part. Yeah, so it, it seems to be operating under the illusion that it is objective, quote unquote, mm. right? That it is immediately, and I mean that in the literal sense, as then not mediated uh, in its relationship between itself, like its its delineation of what right praxis is, and how that you should only be concerned with right praxis, or that you should just do right praxis, or that that's the primary concern, and then as if it's kind a of binary, like, right? Sorry, as if it's a binary between exactly. doxa and praxis. Yeah, and then the only way that you can establish that is by sort of like already foreclosing everything else according to a standard, some sort of objective standard. And that objective standard is that that absolute that you are claiming to have control over. It's the sort of um, imperfect nihilism from Prozorov's text. Yeah, you know, I think Barber does a good job here. His criticism of um, this notion of the invention of religion here isn't that it elevates doxa over praxis, right? That's not the mm. criticism. That's usually mm. what you hear, right? Stop focusing mm. so much on belief and focus more on doing things where it's like, okay, totally empty content there, right? Um, his criticism is that, well, that's good in the sense that it, he uses the term, it disembeds religion from certain bad practices, like mm. the religion of the Roman imperial cult, right? Mm. Um, and, you know, J Jewish material identity um, isn't going to work for a religion that's going to have a shit ton of Greeks in it, right? Mm. Where you can like circumcise a bunch of 40-year-old Greeks, like what the hell, you know? Um, so it's good that it disembeds from that previous notion of religion. The problem then comes, it just re-embeds into this new form of like, I think he calls it like Christian domination at one point. Mm, yes. Right, rather than using that, that potential offered by the disembedding, to form this, what he calls the diasporic tendency towards interparticularity, right? We could mm. have, or there could have been, or there was a potential for Christianity to continually disembed, right? And continually involve itself in reconstituting itself with its environment and with the things around it, right? Mm. And it lost out on that potential, not because it preferred doxa over praxis, but because um, even if you switched them, you would just be another form of uh, of refusing the diasporic tendency, right? Another form of domination, domination by praxis, right? Mm. But not allowing that sort of um, material process to continually um, engage itself in this interparticular formation. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Paul Livingston refers to this as the criteriological approach, and we got to read politics I... of logic on this podcast, man. 
we'll, well, maybe we should do that the one after our next one. Yeah, we'll, we'll think um, about it. Yeah. yeah, continue. But um, he basically talks about how the criteriological orientation, which he traces emerging with Kant in this idea of kind of establishing a regulative principle, let's say, is that the criteriological approach like finds its zenith in the logical positivists, right? And it draws the limits around that which is sayable. Um, and that's why it, it creates the criteria by which, let's say in Barber's term, you can identify false religions or by which you can identify heresy. But it itself stands outside of that criteria, absolved from, as though it's from that objective perspective, as though it's not itself contaminated within the boundaries. But then it can't actually provide a ground for itself, right? So um, That's a really good analogy because that gets yeah. to the, the idea here of what's the break between religion and the secular? Because there's some kind of break there. Like um, a lot of people, you know, want to basically say something like um, Christianity turned into secular Europe and just sort of like changed its mask, but it's still the same political uh, dominating force that it was before. Um, mm. And that that's, you know, he wants to say that that's true in some respect, but also there's some kind of break there between um, Christianity and then this the movement of the secular, even though it's the same space, right? There's some kind of change to the content in some respect. But that doesn't have to be like a 180. It doesn't have to be a complete incommensurable break because you have this notion of, well, Christianity always saw itself as standing outside of the, the criteria of religion even while forming it or like naming it, mm. right? World religions technically refers to Christianity and Judaism and Islam and mm. Hinduism and Buddhism. But there's always a sense in which it's the Christians writing about that, right? It's mm. always a Christian or like a European, a white person writing about the world religions. Um, and so, and we can get into that in a second here, but yeah, I think that's a really good way of thinking about who writes and who forms the criterion that you follow um, and how does it situate itself within, within that criterion. You've studied world religions more than I have, and you, you've got more skin in the game with regards to some of these infights and how people do the study of world religions. How, how do you think is a sort of healthy way to view pre, if we can speculate, like a pre-Christian understanding of religious communities from without or, or not from within this sort of over-determination of the criteriological approach of Christianity. Like, how would Hindus have viewed um, different or competing cultural traditions, uh, you know, not contaminated, let's say, by the, the sort of Christian discourse here, the Christian discourse of dominance? Yeah, I love that question, dude. I mean, I've taught world religions a couple times before, and um, I haven't ever done, like, extensive study of outside of, like, the Judeo-Christian kind of religious format, but I've done a little bit in order to teach that class. And um, I loved when Barbara brought up uh, Tomoko Mazuzawa's book, The Invention of World Religions. It's mm. a fantastic book. Is it? I actually, it's it's super dense, but um, I always, when I've taught world religions, I teach it in the kind of contemporary modern format, um, mostly because you have to, <laughs> uh, unless you have like complete control of your curriculum. Um and so you just you teach 
Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and maybe a couple of more other Eastern religions, and maybe some African right. religions. Jainism and Taoism, real quick or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and you give you just talk about you know the beliefs and the practices and the history basically, mm. and then you move on to the next one and you do some compare and contrast between them, right? And then at the end, I take one chapter from this book by Matsuzawa, The Invention of World Religions, and just kind of blow up the very idea of what we just did, mm. which. I don't know if that's pedagogically the best way of doing it, but I kind of love it. It's very like Nicolas Cage action movie where I can blow it all up after you build it. Yeah. Um, but I like it just because I do think it's important to understand the way that the, the Western world understands these things, right? Learn it. Learn the rules. And then once you learn the rules, you can break them in a purposeful fashion. Mm. I kind of think about like music the same way, right? know the rules for, for songcraft and then you can break them strategically rather than just sort of haphazardly. Um, and so often students have no idea what to make of it, which is fine. Mm. I often put like the last text in a class as being this challenging thing that maybe they get something from, maybe they don't, but I want to attempt to blow up their world a little bit. Um, and just think about the genealogy of this term world religions and where it came from and how it's a it's a largely you know western european and christian invention um and whether or not people who are hindu would even call what they do a religion mm. right or is buddhism even have any sort of uh similarities fundamental similarities with with christianity in terms of the form yeah, does it the operate by by doxa by orthodoxy yeah or is there an entirely different problem solution um sort of dynamic or formula that exists mm. there that would just be foreign to a christian i mean so i so think one quick, of my favorite just, things is that like when christian missionaries go to india oftentimes <laughs> and the hindus are just like yeah we love your shit man give us that yeah, bring jesus. it in jesus yeah oh he, he reminds and, us a lot of vishnu that's cool and interestingly the missionaries have to <laughs> convince the hindus of their definition of religion not of their <laughs> right. content of christianity which perfectly fits in the scheme of the barbers talking about here, right? Did you see the movie Silence, the Scorsese film? Yeah. They kind of deal with that, right? You have these Portuguese missionaries who are going to the East, and then they find this old missionary that they think has been, like, the, you know, that they're trying to find. Because I can't remember, they think he might be killed or something like that. And they mm -hmm. find him, and it turns out that he's actually kind of like, and he goes through this. He tells them, he's like, when you talk about the Son of God, they literally are thinking about the sun in the sky. Like, or whatever it is that, that that he says, you know. But it's like the the very epistemological world from which you speak is qualitatively different, and you think that you have this commensurability, this easy translational commensurability with your framework and their framework by which you can communicate with them in order to convert them. And he says, but it's much more difficult than that. And I think at the end, I don't really remember all of it, but he kind of is advocating for a sort of uh, sensitivity to recognizing difference rather than just simply trying to um, dominate through incorporation or like embrace through a smothering, I think is kind of a, from what I remember. But I, I do remember that being something I was like, oh, it's kind of, kind of lovely. Good move. <laughs> so yeah, and that's what... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's the exact thing that Barbara's claiming the secular does as well, right? Yeah. That's the continuity between the religion. The secular is the, the uh, smother or the embrace that smothers, right? Um, the secular-like religion um, 
posits this, as you were saying, this transcendental plane and all existence outside of that plane are failing or lacking in that project to sort of achieve the goal of that project. For religion, it was orthodoxy, right? The right belief. And secularism, it's the secular redemptive project, right? The redemption of the religious world towards this like purely rational um, world. And he doesn't get too much, I think, into what the concept of that project actually is, but just kind of depicting what the continuity is between religion and the secular there. Yeah, and I think one of the things I really liked about it is that one of the ways it does that is through interpolation, right? Through a sort of ideological incorporation, interpolation, control. And so for people who are listening and they don't know, this is a, a term popularized by Althusser. And the famous example that everybody gives is that um, when a police officer tells you to stop and you're running away from them and he tells you to stop, in your stopping, you are constructing your subjectivity. You are being interpolated into the ideological uh, control mechanism of the police state. Well, because for Althusser, he has these repressive state apparatuses and ideological state apparatuses. And so, but when you are told to stop, your subjectivity is constructed by the structure of that interpolating system that that dominates you and that incorporates you into the system. And that secularity kind of works similarly. Uh, and so does religion, that they work very similarly. They, they occur... Um, in precisely that construction of your subjectivity, let's say on the spiritual plane, by uniting all people um, through right belief or through this ideological interpolatory control mechanism, and that's how it operates. That's how it that's how it operationalizes itself. Let's say in our actual daily lives, in our subjectivity, um, that everybody other than us is failing to be us. Yeah, in a sort of way, yeah. and you know. Barbara goes on from here to talk about the um, sort of inherent racist project that's yeah, this at was the core of this. Yeah, and I thought, you know, this came out like 10 or 11 years ago, right? You mm -hmm. might read this section and be like, ah, this is, this is some reach, right? This is, I don't know, the rest of this maybe would made a little bit more sense philosophically. This is a huge reach to say this whole secular project. That was my instinct racist. when I first started the section, but then yeah. I, I kind of and got then convinced. You, yeah. you, think, you think over the last 10, this is written 11 years ago, what's happened in the past 10 years or so, look at all the like most prominent atheists and secularists in the West, and it's pretty clear that they treat the fundamentalist Christians and the fundamentalist you know, forms of Islam in the East very differently. And it's very clearly a racial contrast. Like mm. nothing is more obvious than the way uh, Richard Dawkins talks about Islam than compared to the way he talks about Christianity, right? He's got the kids' gloves on. He talks about Christianity. It's more like an infantilizing. Mm. Um, these people are just kind of dumb, right? Whereas they're misguided. Yeah. And they which means they can grow up. But yeah, but they're potential but, converts, exactly. Yeah. Islam, no, that's like fundamentally evil. That's that's the opposite, right? So mm. that that differential contrast is extremely clear, and it maybe wasn't as clear um, ten years ago. So I think it's pretty interesting that it's almost like that was predictive, right, of the mm. way the secular project would be recast as even America becomes more and more secular. What do you think of of the sort of claim um, that it's like a secularized Christianity is is how we understand the secular that 
that obviously there are differences, there's a discontinuity, but that the continuity is precisely in what I would maybe want to think of their sort of like logical orientation by establishing themselves as that sort of criteriological uh, standard. Um, but that but that there is something sort of, dare I say, ethnocentric about the notion of the secular itself in its desire for dominance, in its establishment of itself as the criteria by which the rest of the world is judged. I mean, I think you can map this onto, and, and, and I don't think I'm making too much of a stretch here, but to things like the Washington Consensus, for example, that seems to kind of similarly operate as a sort of like uh, expression of this same logic of dominance um, that we see expressed in Christianity or you see, see expressed in secular modernity, that the idea of like exporting democracy um, and through structural adjustment programs at multilateral development banks, that uh, that there's something there's something here I think that kind of relates. Do you think that I'm doing the Heideggerian thing and I'm in inflating this too much, or do you agree that, that there's there's something there there? No, I totally agree. I mean, the Washington Consensus says everything to the left of us and everything to the right of us is fanaticism, right? But we have the hold on rationality, so everyone else is just kind of failing to live up to the standards that we are clear on. And that's the ultimate secular project, right? It should just be assumed that this is the goal of human rationality to form this this sort of society, this kind of politics, whatever, right? And yeah. everyone else just fails to see that or they're driven by their fanaticism towards something irrational and they need to either be curtailed or educated. Yeah, and and this isn't just saying too, because I, I, you know, I think it's it's really important, you know, you get a lot of people, you get the uh, the radical atheist or the new atheist crew, right, that come out. And then you have a lot of people, I think, on in the Christian tradition that respond in a reactionary sense, like, oh, but that's just a religion, bro. Like, like they're just, they're, that's just a different form of religion. They're just dogmatists. And, and it comes across as kind of just being like a fearful reactionary response because they're stern. In, in their criticism. But I think one of the things that Barber is really doing here is he's actually providing like a really profound uh, frame of analysis for thinking through how it is that the secular isn't just a new type of religion, but that how is it, it has a, a similar operational logic in its establishing of the transcendent plane, right? Um, Which is he, he says, for, right, right? Go ahead. Which is unargued for. Right, right. It's positive. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's just positive. It's just presumed. Um, he says right here, he says that uh, the secular can be understood as remaining closer to Christian religion in virtue of their common installation of a transcendent plane. Um, and so then, so it's closer to Christian religion than to an imminent affirmation of the world is what he's saying, which is what he wants to ultimately argue for is an imminent affirmation. But you can understand the secular not really as like this imminent affirmation of the world, which is what it claims to be. It claims to be this sort of like non-ideological. Yeah, I um, love this part. Unbiased, purely empirical and immediate connection with the world. And it claims this imminent affirmation of the world. But Barbara's saying, actually, it still operates according to that logic of transcendence. It's still operating by that criteriological approach. It's and actually a rejection of the world. It, and that's what he says. It's a rejection of the world. So let's say that there's a nihilism there. There's not an affirmation there. 
It's just, it is a nihilistic discourse of rejection of the world. And and I'm going to broaden this out a little bit because I think we see this, this tendency, this secular tendency, not just in like the new atheists, but you see this in a lot of political orientations. You see this a lot in a lot of leftist uh, orientations because they want to criticize religion. I mean, you know, the left began in the National Assembly in Paris with them being on the left side and these sort of monarchists and religionists on the right side and the leftists were anti-monarchical and anti-religion. And then, of course, you find that in Marx's criticisms of religion. And so the left tries to like self-identify in its rejection of what it sees as mystification and uh, as like the superstitious thoughts. But similarly, like what they end up doing is they just establish themselves in a very similar frame to the way that, and there's a quote actually from a third century theologian or a fourth century theologian earlier in this chapter, I can't remember who it was, who says something very similar about how religion views itself against superstitious beliefs. Religion is the true, or Christianity is the true religion, and those other things are just superstitious beliefs. And there's a similar logical operation here with secularity and how it views itself in relation to everything else, right? All all their Um, political orientations, yeah, are this sort of superstitions. Yeah. Fanatics. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought that the way he... The way he supports that and works through that is so important because it's so common right now. There's, you know, a lot of debate on the left online about, you know, how... Like how how do you respond or how how do you situate yourself in relation to like enlightenment rationality and um, you know there's a there's a person that I follow on Twitter recently and um, made a remark about you know she was like uh, you know maybe I'm just some sort of uh, like like hardcore scientific socialist and I, I believe in these certain things and I kind of responded to her and I was like I was like but aren't you worried that you're not just kind of establishing a sort of like dogmatic frame and I it was before I'd read this chapter but I kind of was used similar similar things because I kind of argue for that in my book and I think this is very similar to like my reading of Sartre's criticism of analytical reason and um and I I really rely upon Paul Livingston's uh, delineations of which, you know, that criteriological approach that I've mentioned a couple of times throughout comes from. And so, and I kind of brought that up and, and she was kind of like, I guess I just don't really see the problem. And I kind of talked about logical part of it, positivism. And, and she was kind of like, I, I, I guess I just don't really see the problem with it. And, and we didn't get into it too much. It'd be great. I, I'd actually love to have her on the podcast at some point. Um, it's Allison from, um, the, uh, the Red Menace podcast. I don't know if you listen, but it's, she works with Brett from Rev Left Radio. Um, okay. But she's uh, she's fantastic. She's she's a really great thinker. Um, but um, but I was kind of like I, I don't know. There's this there's this tendency towards people on the quote unquote left to really want to like hold on to a certain reading of of, of like rationalist enlightenment empirical objectivity that I, I like the way that Barber problematizes here. Yeah, I mean I'm still a big fan of rational objectivity, but I think at the same time I you can. The reason I think I like this chapter so much was the genealogical approach to it, I think is helpful no matter what sort of metaphysical or ontological orientation you come from. Um, I've always, there's been a lot of discussion in academic circles about Christianity and the invention of religion as a concept um, from Christianity and then secularism being like a, a sort of new mask for Christianity and all that. And I think this this chapter really helps me think in a fruitful way about what that that those relations actually are between those concepts and then tracing them easily and we've done this the whole time we've done this 
podcast over this book, connecting it to the political realities that Barbara doesn't really do explicitly very often, right? But they're so mm. fruitful for thinking about those things. And I, I'd be curious to find out whether or not that, that's been a common theme in sort of discussions and reactions to this book. Because it seems to me like it's all just like jumping off the page, even though none of it's explicit sort of the mm. political orienta- uh, effects of uh, these concepts. Maybe just it's the time we live in is so loaded conceptually that that's the case, but it seems unique in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think this was when he was, I think this is like his PhD thesis. So I get the feeling, and maybe it's not, but it was definitely around that time, like maybe the first thing that he wrote after or something. But um I definitely get the feeling that he is engaging more explicitly with political issues because his new book is called Against Conversion, but I've heard him talk on YouTube where he's engaged with discourse about neoliberalism and other, let's say, more explicitly political concerns. And so I definitely feel like he's kind of working from within the framework of like political theology and continental philosophy of religion, but that his concerns are precisely, and maybe it's just because of his trajectory, like where he came from. I don't know what his his upbringing was and like what he did for like previous studies, but maybe it's just that that those are like the tool, that's the tool set he works within, you know? So like when we talked about the difference between Barber and like Martin Konings, I'm not, not Barber, Adam Kotzko and Martin Konings, that, um, that there's a similar sort of... Um, and it makes sense that they both kind of contribute to the same blog and I think are friends, but that Kotzko and Barber, there's a similar sort of like tool set that they're working within um, that uh, it doesn't seem to be maybe explicitly political, but in a way they're kind kind of kind of they're kind of like problematizing the very notion of what we consider to be the political because again, maybe we're so overdetermined by our attachment to secularism by thinking that secularism speaks about the mundane and that it speaks about, uh, the imminent and it speaks about the material but that in reality that there is this sort of like illusory transcendental um, operation that's going on and and we need to be aware of that and so they're kind of you know, dialectically problematizing that yeah I think you're right um, so just to kind of wrap up here uh, the the end of the chapter really kind of introduces the notion that that we'll have to recast these, the relations between these terms, these concepts, Christianity, religion, and secularism, not in terms of one dominating the others, which are then dominated, um, but the, from this imminent perspective of differential constitution, right? And I think that mm-hmm. um, that's going to mean changing the meanings of those things through antagonism and through construction and reinterpretation, and that that'll all kind of be the the content of this last chapter, I'm thinking, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interested to see where he moves forward here, um, because he says it's insufficient to name the mode of dominance as Christianity or even as Christianity secularized. Like we can't just simply do that. Um, we have to do something else. So he says any attempt to evade dominance by valorizing one of the differentiated terms will fail, and this is because dominance is established through differentiation itself. So in that very process of differentiating Christianity from the other. In that process of othering, you're reproducing, if you will, 
that dominant differential relation. And that, I think, is where he would be critical of the, the, the dialectical approach. No, that, that you can't just go through this dialectical approach of um, oppositional differentiation or um, problematic contradiction because all you're going to do is reproduce that sort of underlying paradigm of dominance itself, which I think we could say metaphysically is attached to the like metaphysics of identity or of uh, transcendence, as Barbara says here. So we have to think from imminence, which is going to be a little bit different than, I think, a dialectical Hegelian approach. I think that would be his inversion of that. Do you think so as well? Yeah, dialectics, if you conceive of it as um, differential relations, which then fix identity, right? Yes. Whereas he's saying, no, different relations, which sort of undo and then reconstitute and then undo again identity. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it is a, very, it's a very deconstructive approach, here as well. He doesn't, I don't remember if he talks about Derrida earlier, but I see a lot of Derrida in what he's doing. Um, Except for the part that, part that it makes sense. The fart? <laughs> <laughs> that was an appropriate, uh, yeah, I messed up there, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Malapropism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except yeah. for the farts. <laughs> Except for the farts. Um, yeah, so he says that basically uh, we need to conceive of difference prior to its resolution into a distinction between dominating and dominated terms. This is where there's that Derrida. You've got the dominate, the dominating, the two binaries. We need to conceive of difference prior to its resolution into this distinction itself. So, like, what is it that is the ground that produces that distinction in the first place, right? So let's not presume the distinction between Christianity and the secular, or between uh, religion and the secular, but let's just kind of work through the conditions by which those themselves emerge. Um, and so... Uh, this concept of diaspora, therefore, becomes this antagonistic and constructive project that he's going to develop in the final chapter that he believes will allow us to kind of circumvent that tendency towards establishing the dominating and dominating, the orthodoxy, the unorthodox, the heretical, the true, etc., etc., inside, the outside. And that's what he ultimately wants to do is just eradicate that binary tendency, per se, through the concept of diaspora. Yep. I'm excited about it. Me too, man. All right, sweet. So let's go ahead and move on to our final segment of this really long episode, but I uh, hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, this is now the sort of like after dinner mint of the podcast where one of us gets <laughs> to talk about what it is that's giving us joy or meaning or happiness or whatever in this world. It is time for the sticky leaves. Troy, what is your after dinner mint? So sticky leaves and mint is a kind of leaf, right? So Ooh. is there a connection there? Are we like stepping on mint? It's that like mint tea. It actually. Yeah. You're, just, you're supposed to like like rub mints to make the like on your balls or whatever come out, right? <laughs> is that actually a thing, like a manscaping thing? No, but it sounds great. <laughs> All right. So my sticky leaves this week, we're going real long on this podcast. I'm going to keep it real short. Um, I randomly saw a tweet that reminded me totally impromptu without any actual context um, of my favorite video game of all time, Final Fantasy VII. And you know, this game gets shat on a little bit, I think, by people today um, because it's it was like one of the first, it was like the first big game to come out for PlayStation in 1997. And so it's like, it's a lot of people's um, go-to for like best game of all time. It's okay. like uh, it's like Sergeant Peppers, where if uh, you say like Sergeant too, Peppers, it's too easy. Is the, 
Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like come on, man. Like think harder. Like try harder. Like don't be that guy. <laughs> Who's you your know? favorite band? The Beatles, bro. No. What's your on. favorite movie? The Godfather. Oh, come on, dude. Really? <laughs> okay. Okay. I didn't it's play like this that, game, right? so I don't know. Oh yeah, and I, I got it when I was eleven, I think. Yeah, like after it came out, and I played it f- like fifty times through. It was revolutionary and changing what mm-hmm. I thought games were, stories were, everything. And uh, it gets shot on because it's not perfect, and the graphics are a bit dated, obviously now. And certainly, some games um, from that time aged more gracefully with the sort of graphical domain. Um, they made some choices about how to update the graphics for PlayStation that just did not end up influencing the way future games would be, um, and many other reasons. But you know, I want to defend this game a bit because the basic setup of this game, for people who don't know, is you start out as a member of a, an environmentalist terrorist, an eco-terrorist group, and you blow up some basically nuclear reactor. It's not nuclear, but it's it's an analog to that. Um, because there's a giant corporation which is gaining more and more control of the world, um, forcing the majority of people into impoverished wage slavery. Um, Whoa, you while they get While they get incredibly rich off of the process of destroying the world environmentally and causing a cataclysm which will destroy the world. Holy this was shit. in 1997, played by an 11-year-old. And the very Propaganda. first scene... The very first scene is you blowing up one of these reactors, and you never Damn. really regret that. I mean, there's a point where some of the characters are like, yeah, we could have done things better, but you never really <laughs> regret it. Um, it's more like you come to learn more about how the world works than it is regretting being an eco-terrorist. Um, Dialectical, man. Yeah, exactly. So this game basically had like environmental catastrophe caused by corporate greed and lack of regulation and corporate control of government and mass mass poverty and suffering income inequality there's even a scene where male characters cross-dress as female characters and if anybody who's played this game knows this is like one of the famous scenes from the game this was all in 1997 this existed and for all the problems that that the game has um and maybe some people can't go back to it and play it now for various reasons i think that that's pretty revolutionary and i want i want to just sort of recommend to anybody to go back get on your playstation 4 whatever download the game it's probably like 10 bucks to play now and just walk yourself through a classic like that and think about what it would be like to be an 11 year old in 1997 playing a game as an eco-terrorist learning about all these things and how that game probably radicalized me more than anything else in my life without mm-hmm. really knowing it. This explains a lot because I played Tecmo Super Bowl a shitload when I was 11. <laughs> yeah, I didn't play Madden <laughs> shit, shit, dude. No, nah, it was this shit. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid and this, man. Those two games, they fucked me up beyond all recognition. See, now I wish I would have played the. I didn't play either of those games. I heard about them, but like my friends that I hung out with were all jocks. Or, I mean, at, at, especially younger, when I was younger, it was all jocks, it was all sports. So I played Tecmo games, I played hockey games, I played Madden games. The first, like, I don't know, shooter type of game or story type of game I played was Halo, I think. Yeah. Yeah, dude, when, when like, conservatives talk about how, like, media is uh, manipulating and, and, like, brainwashing our kids into being leftists, they're almost always lying, except for, like, Final Fantasy 7 and Metal Gear Solid. 
Because those 100% are brainwashing you into being a leftist. But you know what? Yeah. That's cool, man. <laughs> yeah, that's I ain't cool, against man. it. <laughs> that's right. I'm going to force my kids to play it. Oh. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, I never played it, man. I don't know. But I. it's funny. when If someone were to ask me, like, what are the most famous video games of all time? I would probably forget it. But then when you mention it and then you talk about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've heard people talk about this a billion times as being one of the greatest games of all time. And I haven't obviously really immersed myself in the debates because that's not really my world. But um, I do remember hearing that this is kind of a contested issue about whether or not this is the greatest game of all time and why. And yeah, maybe you've introduced me to that actually previously. Perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Well, they're going to make a remake eventually, probably for PlayStation 5. So when that happens... Yeah, it's going to be called Final Fantasy VII, the remake or something like that. Is it really the seventh one? Like, is there a Final Fantasy IV? Oh, yeah. There's and, been uh, 15, I think. 15. And were they, because this one came out on PlayStation, so what consoles were those on? The previous ones? Yeah. They were on NES and SNES. Oh, were they? Yeah. Oh, okay. I think I okay. played Final Fantasy VI. That's another one that's considered, like, one of the greatest of all time. Uh, I played is that, that on Super Nintendo? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Oh, see, I didn't know about it. About any of the, I played fucking Zelda. Well, yeah, well, yeah, only a couple of them came over from Japan to the U.S. Um, oh, okay. Several of them didn't ever make it over in translation. God damn it! Why wasn't I born in like a cool place like Japan where they had rad video games? <laughs> well, you played mm-hmm. Zelda on on SNES. I don't remember if it was Super Nintendo or Nintendo. I think it was Nintendo. Yeah, it was, it was like, Nintendo because it was gold. The cartridge was gold. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, dude. Oh, that's right. Because all the other ones are that boring gray color, but it was a <laughs> gold one. Yeah. That's I don't really remember. Uh, it was good shit, man. I know. I Every once in a while, I like, get into these moods where I'm like, I'm going to buy a console and I'm going to like play Uncharted <laughs> and The Last of Us and Bioshock. Oh, dude. And so good. Oh, my God. I know. I know. These are, I feel like it would it would both enrich and destroy my life at the same time. That's the thing, so, though. Now it's they're so immersive and well developed. Some of these games that it's like, it's it's just a wholly different like medium compared to what it was when we were playing Super Mario in the nineties. As great as yeah. those games are, it's a whole different medium. Oh, and this is nothing. I mean, when I'm fucking eighty and I'm getting ready to just be completely, I don't know, euthanized or whatever is going to happen. Um, imagine what the kids are going to be playing, man. You're going to have like 14-year-olds that are literally like walking through virtual worlds. I can't even imagine. Like my 10-year-old self, my brain explodes thinking (laughs) about playing on a high-def immersive television now. I can't even imagine what 10-year-old me would think about about what gaming is going to be like in 50 years. Yeah, I wonder about that, dude, because I'm a little pessimistic. Like as it becomes more VR-oriented and... I just fear it's going to become more and more like fan servicey. Like, let's just give you what like spikes the spikes like the, or creates the neuronal spikes on your brain scans um, mm. the most. Since you know that's the way that all like consumer culture ends up being, right? Um, mm. Whereas, like right now, we're in this golden age where like people are creating artistic games. That I mean, like Last of Us, you were just mentioning. Mm. I couldn't tell you another piece of media that's had a like more profound emotional impact on me than playing that game Mm. i don't know if there's one i don't know there's a movie maybe maybe a few books 
at best, but it's just it's like this this golden age of like the technology is so good that it can actually create these realistic scenarios that invoke emotions in you, but then also it's not to the point where it's it's so tapped into like the uh, um, like the neuro capital aspect of it that it's just purely about that's it, man. And and the more pleasure. that data extraction becomes crucial to the economic modalities, then the more you're going to see things like the Fortnites that are going to be they're they're going to just continue not just to extract money from you through like up purchases and things like that, but they're going to find out what your spending patterns are or what your spending habits are, and they're going to utilize that uh, on kind of new models that are going to be immersive where not only are you going, but you're also shopping at the gap or whatever that gap maybe is out of business. But while you're like walking through the space, you got to go buy new whatever. And so you go to the Nike store and it's all sponsored by Nike and your purchases maybe actually even kind of like are somehow tied into the Nike platform and you have to buy your Apple cell phone credits and you have to like pay for subscriptions in the game that are also tied to like the subscription Apple service. You can see that I'm very pessimistic about where we're going economically here because I I basically picture this like neo-feudal asset society where we're just like immersed in platforms all the time. So that's what I f- picture as the future of gaming. But nevertheless, it's still going to be fucking crazy when you're in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, like I compare that to yeah, I used to like go to school, middle school, when I was 11, 12 years old, right? And I have other friends who were playing Final Fantasy VII. And we would just like discuss the like different mysteries and like, you know, there, there wasn't the whole online culture then. So you couldn't just look up how to do things. Mm. You had to just like explore and figure it out, right? And like there are all these like myths about things you could do in the game, which you just mm. absolutely could not do. Right. Like, and but no, no, I heard this one guy told me you could do this, right? Um, and like that whole exploratory aspect of it that's just completely open-ended and how that's just there's there isn't a motivation for that kind of a product to really exist so much anymore like you have open world games now that are huge and expansive right but really it's about either going through the main story or just being a completionist who has to have everything right it's about achieving you ever played rather Minecraft? than um I've seen, yeah, my brother's a big Minecraft guy, or used to be at least, so I've, I've seen it a lot. I haven't I think I've actually played it. Mm. That kind of seems to, because it is this open world thing, and it is about achieving, but there isn't, from what I understand, at least, because I haven't seen it in a few years, so I don't know if it's been updated and they've kind of like commercialized it more, but it seems to kind of have this like just artistic freedom to it, that it was just purely about the pursuit of construction. And it was almost yeah, like this. That. Yeah, it was like this meditative, like, Buddhists, like you know how they they'll, they'll sit there and they do those like the sand sculptures and shit, the mandalas, like, that. like yeah, yeah, those things. It was like it's like that, but in a digital version. Yeah, impermanent, digital impermanence, bitch. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Kind of rad, huh? Yeah, there's there's spaces for that that exist, and uh, I'm so glad that they do because there's also so much bullshit out there that's just about developing like the worst instincts that we have and mm. training us to be lab rats to buy the extra $2 thing or whatever. Mm. Fuck. But fuck that, that and go back and shit. play Final Fantasy VII, man. <laughs> I 
Right on. Well, cool. Well, we should go ahead and wrap up uh, the episode here. want to give a, a final shout-out to our sponsors, Mubi. Go to Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn, and you can get access to badass quality cinema. Yeah, and you'll yeah. get a 30-day free trial if you go to Mubi.com slash Owls at Dawn. Also, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, Owls underscore at underscore Dawn. You can email us, Owls at Dawn podcast at gmail.com. There's more stuff, Troy. What am I forgetting? You can go on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and review. And if you ask a question in your review, we will address it on air as we did at the beginning of this episode. Sweet. And I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, man? Just one more thing, dude. What's up? That's the Danny Americanski. <laughs> <laughs>